Welcome to Earth Matters here on Gila Members Community Radio, KURU 89.1 FM, Silver City. This is Allison Civic, Executive Director of Gila Resources Information Project, a nonprofit advocacy organization that promotes community health by protecting our environment and natural resources. I also serve as the Director of the Gila Conservation Coalition that works to protect the free flow of the Gila and San Francisco rivers and the wilderness characteristics of the Gila and Aldo Leopold wilderness areas. In September, the Gila Conservation Coalition organized the 17th annual Gila River Festival that explored our connection to nature, how the environment shapes human identity, and celebrated our connection to one another and to the Gila River watershed. Today on Earth Matters, we're bringing to you Nature's Best Hope by the New York Times bestselling author Doug Tallamy who talks about his plan to restore critical ecosystem services to address the climate and extinction crises. Thanks to the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities for their generous support of the Gila River Festival and this presentation. Don Graves, Gila Native Plant Society chairman, served as moderator for the talk. Let's listen. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the closing event of the 17th annual Gila River Festival, where we reconnected with the Gila River virtually, as we're doing now, and in person. Thank you so much for joining us today. Because we believe that land acknowledgments are important to healing relationships with our Indigenous brothers and sisters, as we work together to restore our Earth, I'd like to acknowledge that those of us joining from what is now Southwest New Mexico reside on the occupied homelands of the Chiricahua and Warm Springs Apache. We would like to pay our respects to Apache and all native elders, both past and present. Each year, many generous individuals, businesses, and organizations donate to the Gila River Festival because they support our work to protect the Gila River and the greater Gila Gila bioregion. This year, our major sponsors are the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities, Center for Biological Diversity, Sissy McAndrew at United Country Membris Realty, Defenders of Wildlife, Richard Ducote and Rebecca Summers, Fort Sill Apache Tribe, Gila Native Plant Society, which Don will tell us about, New Mexico <laughs> Wild, Western Institute of Lifelong Learning, or WILL, and the Wilderness Society. Please look at the Gila River Festival website for the complete list of all our sponsors and friends. There are a lot of them. We thank each and every one of them. And I'd also like to thank the many people who collaborated in this community event, the Festival Planning Committee, who are extremely dedicated and put in a lot of hours, and all of our festival presenters and volunteers. This evening, we are offering copies of Doug Tallamy's best-selling book, Nature's Best Hope, for donations to the Gila Conservation Coalition of $50 or more. If you'd like to support our work on behalf of the Gila River, please go to the link that we will post in chat, make a donation, and we'll reserve a copy for you. It's my pleasure now to introduce you to the moderator of tonight's event, Don Graves, who has spent the better part of his adult life in education, both informal and formal. Don taught biology at the community college level for over 30 years. 
In 2007, he was awarded the Excellence in Teaching Award from the Board of Trustees of the Minnesota State Colleges and Universities. Because working with youth has always been a special focus for him, Don has worked closely with the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and the Student Conservation Association. He currently serves as the president of the Gila Native Plant Society, one of our sponsors, the local chapter of the Native Plant Society of New Mexico. Welcome, Don. Uh, thank you, Donna. Thank you very much. This is really an honor, and we're really proud, the Gila Native Plant Society, to be a, a sponsor of this year's uh, Gila River Festival. As you said, you know, we're the Healy Native Plant Society is a chapter of the Native Plant Society of New Mexico, which I think has about eight chapters. And one of them is in El Paso. And so evidently they choose, have chosen New Mexico over Texas. Um, let me give you just a little, little quick thing of what we've been doing. Um, last week, one week ago, we had 25 part participants on our native plant walk. And COVID's been tough for us, but now we feel like we can get out in, in the fresh air. Um, and sometimes we, as botanists, I don't know how entomologists fare, but we uh, sometimes never get really very far out of the parking lot. Um, we have yesterday, yesterday, we had 150 buyers and five vendors at our native plant sale. And it was fantastic. We had these five vendors, and I think maybe the most, some of these came with two or 300 plants, and they left with virtually nothing, and it was a, it was a resounding success. So I'm so happy to be part of this discussion because it's with, with our focus on native plants and Doug's focus on all things native, um, really important. Our, our October program is going to be on Zoom. And it's being sponsored and delivered by the Bat Conservation International. We're going to be looking at long-nosed bats and the interaction with our native agave. So that'll be really wonderful. And we have a absolutely magical, wonderful botanical garden, the Silver Creek Botanical Garden here in Silver City. And it is the best kept secret in Silver City. So proud to be a sponsor. So... I encourage all of you to go to the uh, website of the uh, Gila River Festival and read Doug Ptolemy's bio for yourself. However, I want to share with you what I have learned about Doug Ptolemy. We just met 20 or so minutes ago. I read three of his books. That has helped me to come to know him just a little bit anyway. He's the T.A. Baker Professor of Agriculture in the Department of Entomology. He's an insect guy and wildlife ecology at the University of Delaware. So not only is he an insect guy, but he is interested in the ways in, that these insects interact with the plants around them and how these interactions affect the diversity of animal communities. I've learned that Doug Ptolemy has a real fondness for moths. Hey, who knew? Even more so the caterpillars from which they have metamorphosed. In Nature's Best Hope, he outlines what should, become, should be common sense, Caterpillars eat plants. Native caterpillars vastly prefer to eat the native plants that they have ancient associations with. Our native birds require vast amounts of caterpillars to feed and nourish their chicks. More native plants, more tasty caterpillars, more healthy chicks, resulting in healthier bird populations. I have learned that Professor Ptolemy 
actively engages his students, mentoring them to do in-depth study to better understand these interactions between native plants and the insect species that depend upon them. I know that Doug Ptolemy, although a very distinguished entomologist, has the rare gift of making challenging scientific information accessible, not only to his colleagues and graduate students, but to a much wider audience, homeowners, grade school teachers, and even Gila River Festival participants. I have come to understand that he truly believes that a whole succession of seemingly small changes in our landscaping practices can have enormous ramifications. He enlists us in his book, Nature's Best Hope, to participate, to transform our yards into millions of mini national parks, homegrown national parks, whose collective significance can help heal a damaged planet. And by the way, his most recent book, The Nature of Oaks, is a wonderful book. Please welcome and put your little um, Zoom clappy hands together for Doug Ptolemy. Well, thank you very much, Don. Um, that's a wonderful summary of what I'm going to talk about tonight. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> all right, I'm going to try to get rid of our faces here. Um, all right. Uh, I do want to talk about my idea of what nature's best hope is. But before I do that, I want to I want to talk about what happened on the East Coast in 2019. We had what we call an oak mast where all the members of the Red Oak Group got together and decided to make their acorns at the same time. And this is what it looked like in a lot of places. Well, I am easily entertained. So I took one of those acorns and I just stared at it and I was rewarded. An insect started to chew its way out of the acorn. At first it chewed a hole for its head, then it forced its head through there and it forced its entire body through that hole. It was a tight squeeze. It looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Finally, it plopped down. That's a very dangerous time for this insect larva because it's good to eat. A lot of things are after it. So it gets to safety by wiggling and squirming beneath the soil surface. In about 30 seconds down it goes. And then once it's underground, it stretches in all directions and forms a chamber. And within that chamber converts itself to a pupa and it stays there for two years. After two years comes out as an acorn weevil. This is what an acorn weevil looks like. A lot of people think weevils have big noses because it looks like they do, but that's actually an extension of the head capsule. And the mouth parts are way down here at the end of that extension. And they take those mouth parts, chew a hole down into the center of the acorn, turn around and lay an egg in that hole. And that's how the larva gets down there. You might wonder why they spend two years underground. Why don't they come out the next year the way most insects would? Uh, and the answer is it takes red oak acorns 18 months to complete their development. So if they came out the next year, there wouldn't be enough acorns for them. Of course, after the acorn weevil leaves the acorn, there's a hole in the acorn, a true vacuum. And you know that nature abhors a vacuum. And in this case, she has filled it with three species of temnothorax ants, tiny little ants where the entire colony lives within the holes made by acorn weevils in acorns. And if scouts find a new acorn with a new hole, they get very excited because their old acorn is falling apart. So they tell everybody it's time to move, time to grab the larvae, grab the eggs, move the entire colony into the new acorn, takes about 30 minutes. Then they post a guard here, make sure nobody else comes in. And that's where they will live for the next two years until this acorn falls apart. What's my point? My point is very simple. That is, is simply one of literally millions of very specialized interactions between animals and plants that comprise the bulk of nature. This is another one, the relationship between jays and acorns. Jays are the primary disperser of oak acorns. They will take an acorn fly up to a mile from the parent tree. Then they tap it below the surface of the, of the soil. The idea is they're going to get that acorn during the winter and have something to eat. The key is they only remember where one out of every four acorns they bury 
are in the wintertime, which means for every four acorns they bury, they're actually planting three oak trees. And that allows oaks to move faster and farther than any other tree genus in the world. Another specialized relationship between pileated woodpeckers and carpenter ants, that's what they rear their young on. So you won't have pileated woodpeckers unless you have lots of carpenter ants, and you won't have lots of carpenter ants unless you have the big trees that make those carpenter ants. You won't have the beloved Emarginia unless you have mistletoe. And you won't have mistletoe unless you have the oaks that support that mistletoe. That's the only plant that they develop on. You won't have 60 species of native, native bees. This is in California, but it's in most of the Southwest that can only reproduce on the pollen of uh, perennial sunflowers. Turns out that out of our 4,000 species of native bees, more than a third of them can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants. So pollen specialization is very common. I could talk all night about, about uh, how nature really is a series of very specialized interactions. My point though, is that today these, these specialized relationships, nature itself is on the ropes and it's on the ropes because we did not take Teddy Roosevelt's advice. Way back in 1908, Teddy heard that the state of Arizona was going to mine the Grand Canyon. So he went to the canyon, looked out over the edge, and he said, leave it as it is. And with those five words, he started the process of creating the Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, of course, it's not possible to leave the country as it was because we haven't. There's only about 5% of the lower 48 states. It's anything close to its original pristine ecological condition. And that's because we have logged the country repeatedly. We have tilled it. We have drained it. We have grazed it. We've got 770 million acres of rangeland in the U.S. That's uh, four and a half times the size of Texas. And of course, we paved it or otherwise developed it. We have straightened our rivers and dammed them. And you can spell that any way you want. We have polluted our skies and changed our climate for centuries to come. We have drained our aquifers. We've introduced more than 3,300 species of plants from other continents, many of which are running amok in our, our natural areas. In short, we have charged up, uh, we have carved up those natural areas into tiny remnants of their, their former selves. And each one of those remnants is too small and too isolated from other remnants to sustain the species that run the ecosystems that we all depend on. You might wonder why we've done that. I wonder about it. Uh, and I don't know, but I, I suspect we, we thought that the earth, our nest was so large, we could foul it forever and there wouldn't be any consequences. Of course, we were, we were wrong about that. And that's why we're seeing pretty scary, uh, scary headlines like this. The insect apocalypse is here. Talking about global insect decline. What does it mean for the rest of life on earth? Followed by this one, North America has lost 3 billion breeding birds in the last 50 years. That's almost a third of our North American bird population already gone. The UN says, well, you know, we're, we're likely to lose a million species to extinction and probably within the next 20 years. And I love the way they report headlines like this as if it's an option. I mean, they might as well say we're going to lose oxygen in the next 20 years and then go on to the next headline as if it doesn't matter. This is not an option, folks. We cannot lose a million species or more to extinction because they're what keep us alive on this planet. So I go on talking about the, the pox that we humans have delivered upon the environment, that's upon all of our houses. But that's not what this talk is about. This talk is about a cure for that pox. It's a cure that'll take small efforts from lots of people, but those efforts will uh, deliver enormous physical, psychological, and environmental benefits to absolutely everybody. Let's return briefly to this headline, the insect apocalypse is here. What does it mean for the rest of life on earth? Well, E.O. Wilson, certainly the most impactful biologist uh, of our, our times, Harvard Emeritus at this point, told us what it would mean if we lost insects on planet earth. And he told us way back in 1987, with this paper, The Little Things That Run the World. His message was very clear. 
Life as we know it depends on insects. And if they were to disappear, so would most of our flowering plants. And if our flowering plants disappeared, that would so drastically change energy flow through our terrestrial ecosystems uh, that the food webs that support our animals, the amphibians, the reptiles, the birds, the mammals, even many of our freshwater fish, those food webs would collapse and those animals would disappear. The biosphere, the living portion of the earth would rot because we would have lost insect decomposers that rapidly turn over nutrients. And all we would have is bacteria and fungi. Of course, humans would not survive any of those drastic changes. The good news is that, uh, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, that doesn't have to happen. We can save our insects. We can save our birds. We can save nature itself. But we're going to have to change the way we landscape to do it. Why is that? Well, remember, humans are products of nature. We're totally dependent on, on what we call ecosystem services, the life support systems that are delivered by healthy ecosystems. Here are some of the things that, that plants do for us, but for everything else as well like producing oxygen, pretty important. Clean water, water falls from the sky, plants clean it and slow its journey to the sea where it gets too salty to use, capture carbon, pull the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, lock it up in their tissues and then pump the extra carbon into the ground. Our soils are brown or black because of uh, carbon that, that plants have deposited there over the eons. Really important today. Plants are building topsoil, holding it in place. They're preventing floods. They're dampening severe weather convert sunlight to food. Without plants, we would have to eat sunlight and that will be tricky. What do animals do for plants? They provide pest control services. They pollinate nearly 90% of our flowering plants. They disperse plant seeds. So designing landscapes like this that destroy the production of ecosystem services is not a good idea. It never was a good idea, but today it's actually a terrible idea because uh, we've got 7.8, 7.9 billion people on the planet. We need more ecosystem services today than ever before. Uh, there have been uh, uh, visionaries through the ages who have recognized that we humans needed to work on our relationship with planet Earth. And Aldo Leopold was one of the most eloquent, wrote extensively in the first half of the 1900s. One of the things he said is that the oldest task in human history is to live in a piece of land without spoiling it. Now, there have been indigenous groups that have been able to do that for long periods but our huge Western societies and our huge uh, Asian societies are terrible at doing that. We habitually take more from the earth than it has to offer, completely wrecking an area, going to another area, doing the same thing, not sustainable behavior. While the Leopold had great faith in, in humans, uh, he believed that we could, we could actually learn what he called a land ethic. Uh, he knew that we had to, to use the earth. We had to farm and lumber and graze and mine and do all of those things. But he believed we could learn to do them gently enough that we did not destroy local ecosystems. And that's what he called the land ethic. He wrote about it in his very famous book, The Sand County Almanac. What he never talked about though was developing a land ethic where we actually lived. And I'm not sure why that was, but I suspect the notion that humans and nature cannot coexist in the same place at the same time was so deeply embedded in the culture of Aldo Leopold's day. It's still embedded in our own culture that he may not have recognized it as an option. What I want to argue this evening, though, is that not only is living with nature an option, it is now the only viable option that's left to us. In the past, conservationists worked pretty much exclusively where there weren't a lot of people. We now need to turn that on its head. We need to save nature, actually reconstruct it, where we dismantled it, where there are a lot of people, because that's pretty much everywhere. In other words, we have to find ways for nature to thrive in human-dominated landscapes, not hang on by a thread, but thrive. Where should we start? Private property. At least we cannot ignore 
private property. We certainly want to save the parks and preserves, the natural areas. We want to, we want to preserve the, the Gila River ecosystem for sure. But most of the area in the U.S. is privately owned. 85.6% of the U.S. east of the Mississippi is privately owned. 78% of the entire country is, is privately owned. If we ignore conservation and private property, we're going to fail. So we've got parks and preserves, uh, but we're now in the sixth great extinction uh, this planet has ever, ever experienced. So they obviously are not enough. They are not working. We have to do conservation outside of parks and preserves. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. We certainly want to conserve anything that's left. We want to keep doing that for sure. But um, I want to focus on rebuilding nature where we've already dismantled it. Uh, we, we, we can do that by reassembling the specialized interactions that are nature. It won't look exactly like it did before we dismantled it, but it still can be a functional ecosystem that delivers ecosystem services. In order to do that though, we have to start with the building blocks of various ecosystems because all species don't contribute to ecosystem function equally. And there are two groups of species that we cannot do without. The flowering plants and those pollinators that allow them to reproduce. We need this flowering plants because they're capturing the energy from the sun and turning it into food and then storing that food in their parts. So now we have the energy as stored as food in, in plant parts, particularly their leaves. Well, most we have got to get that, that energy to animals or we won't have any animals and we won't have any functional ecosystems. Most vertebrates do not eat plants directly. They eat invertebrates that ate those plants. And most of those invertebrates are insects. And it turns out that most of the insects that are delivering energy to other animals are caterpillars. Caterpillars transfer more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. So if we design landscapes, if we design restored ecosystems that don't have enough caterpillars, they will have failed food webs and they will be failed ecosystems. I'm gonna use the Carolina chickadee as an example. Uh, there's been a lot of research on the Carolina chickadee. The chickadee species all over the country are doing very much the same thing. Uh, well, during the wintertime, they are granivores. They eat seeds. That's why we see them at our feeders. About 50% of their diet in the wintertime is seed. The other 50% is insects, even in the wintertime. But when they're reproducing, their babies cannot eat seeds. So they switch entirely to insects. And if they're in a healthy environment, they will rear their young entirely on caterpillars. And it turns out chickadees are not exceptions. 96% of our, our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects. And most of those insects are caterpillars. How do I know that? Well, there's a number of lines of evidence that suggest that, but this is a citizen science project that one of my students did recently, Ashley Kennedy. She put out a call to bird photographers uh, across the country. Some of you might have contributed to this to take pictures of birds during the breeding season when they were carrying food to the nest. Uh, and they were gonna send those pictures to Ashley. She was gonna identify the prey items in the beaks of those birds and reconstruct the nestling diet for as many species of birds uh, in the US as possible. And this is a summary of her, her uh, results. The green bars are the percentage of nestling diets that were caterpillars. And in 16 out of the 20 common bird families in North America, caterpillars dominate the nestling diet. So again, what would happen if we took caterpillars out of the system or if we didn't have enough caterpillars? Most of our birds would not be able to reproduce. So there's something special about caterpillars that we need to talk about. What is it? There's actually several things uh, special about caterpillars. One of them is that they are soft. So think of this guy as if he's a, a, a little sausage with a very thin wrapper. 
The thin wrapper is its exoskeleton, its cuticle. It's made of chitin, it's undigestible, and the birds don't want a lot of that. And because caterpillars are soft, you can stuff them down the throat of your offspring without fear of injuring it. And if you've ever uh, watched a parent bird rear their young, they're pretty rough. Their beak is like a plunger. They just stuff it down there. Caterpillars are also relatively large prey items. One medium-sized caterpillar is equal to the biomass of 200 aphids. Some of our, our uh, smaller birds do chase aphids around, but do you want to chase 200 aphids or get one caterpillar? They are nutritious. They're very high in fat, very high in protein, very low percentage of chitin of exoskeleton compared to uh, many other types of insects, particularly beetles. Beetles are not like little sausages. They're like little tanks. So much of a beetle is, is undigestible. And a lot of beetles have very sharp edges as well. And finally, it turns out the caterpillars are the best source of carotenoids for birds during the breeding season. Now, I mentioned carotenoids not because I love uh, organic chemistry, but because I'm a vertebrate and you're a vertebrate and birds are vertebrates and we vertebrates cannot make our own carotenoids. Only plants make carotenoids. So we have to get our carotenoids from plants and we have to get them from plants because they are essential components of vertebrate diets. Well, where are the birds getting their carotenoids from, from those prey items that they're eating? But look, carotenoid content is not equally the, uh, uh, distributed across bird prey items. These first two items here, first two bars are types of caterpillars. They have far more carotenoids than other types of, of bird prey. Uh, here are the adult caterpillars down here, the moths and the butterflies themselves. Uh, they don't have very many carotenoids because they're not eating the green leaves of those plants. That's where the carotenoids are. And here's the earthworm way down here. So the early bird gets the worm, but he doesn't get any carotenoids when he's, when he's eating the worm. Uh, so that study and a number of others are suggesting that caterpillars are not optional parts of bird diets. They are essential parts of bird diets. So let's just say birds need caterpillars. The next question is, how many do they need? Is one or two enough? One or two a day enough? Well, let's go back to Carolina chickadees. There's a lot of data on chickadees. How many caterpillars does it take to make a nest of chickadees? One or two is not enough. One or two a day is not enough. It takes thousands of caterpillars, 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to get one clutch, one nest full of chickadees to reach the point where they leave that nest. And that depends on the number of chicks in the nest. So they reach the point where they fledge. And after they fledge, the parents continue to feed them caterpillars for another 21 days. But they're flying all around, so nobody knows how many caterpillars that is. But you're talking about tens of thousands of caterpillars required to make one clutch of a bird that is a third of an ounce, four pennies worth of bird. And if you want chickadees to breed in your yard, and I would think you, you might want to, because in so many places, that's all that's left is our yards. You have to have all those caterpillars in your yard because chickadees only forage about 50 meters from the nest. They're not flying five miles down the road to the nearest woodlot. And if, you, if we landscape in a way that does not have all those caterpillars, that's called insect decline. And it's really looking like insect decline is directly related to the bird declines that are being measured today. Excuse me. We went to the original data set of Rosenberg et al., the Smithsonian group that says we've lost 3 billion birds in the last 50 years. And we divided the terrestrial bird species into two groups, the species that require insects, particularly when they're breeding, and the species that do not require insects. So things like doves and finches that can reproduce off of seeds. Well, they didn't lose any numbers over the last 50 years, but the species that require insects, the species that depend on insects, lost on average 10 million individuals per species. This doesn't prove cause and effect, but it certainly is suggestive that as you take away bird food, you lose the birds. It's a pretty easy concept to grasp. So we need to, uh, we need to make caterpillars. We need to make all the insects that run our, our ecosystems, all those little things that run the world, which means we have to rethink how we landscape. We've landscaped in the past you know, century and more 
for aesthetics only. Uh, so how do we, how do we, we can, we can make beautiful landscapes, but how do we make beautiful landscapes that also make caterpillars? Well, we do that by adding the plants that support caterpillars to our landscapes. And that seems pretty, pretty straightforward, but there is a catch. And that is that most plants don't make a lot of caterpillars. So we have to be fussy about which plants we choose, not just for our yards, but for our agriculture, for everything that's out there. We have to put the plants that generate a lot of caterpillars out there. And we have to be fussy because the caterpillars themselves are fussy. And the monarch butterfly illustrates that perfectly. Um, I know you don't have a whole lot of monarchs in, in New Mexico, but it's a poster child of host plant specialization in this country. You can have all of the Asian ornamentals that we typically decorate with uh, our, our landscape with, and you won't make a single monarch butterfly unless you have milkweed. Uh, that is the only plant that monarchs will, will develop on. Uh, and that is called host plant specialization. It turns out that most of the insects that eat plants are host plant specialists. Why? because plants have made them that way. Plants don't want to be eaten. They want to capture the energy from the sun and use it for their own growth and reproduction. So they have loaded their leaves with nasty tasting chemicals, secondary metabolic compounds that make those leaves either bitter or downright toxic. And it's a really effective defense that keeps uh, most of the insects of the world from eating most of the plants of the world. And that's why it's green out there. It's not because there's no insects uh, that want to eat those plants out there. It's because most of the insects that are out there cannot eat most of the plants. They are too well protected. But insects do eat plants. So how do they do that? How do they get around those chemical defenses? Well, this is where the specialization comes in. 90% of the insects that eat plants are host plant specialists. Every plant lineage that's out there protects itself with a unique cocktail of chemical defenses. And an insect species can't adapt to all of them. So they pick one or two and they get really good at getting around those particular uh, chemical defenses. They develop enzymes that store and excrete and detoxify those compounds, behavioral adaptations and life history adaptations that uh, minimize the insect's exposure to those compounds. But it takes a long period of, of exposure to those plant lineages for all of those adaptations to fall into place. And once they do, the insect is locked into eating that particular group of plants. And that's why when we take milkweeds out of our landscapes, Monarchs don't switch to our crepe myrtles or anything else that's in our landscape. They disappear. They can't eat anything else. And it's also why when we bring plants from other continents into the U.S., most of our insects cannot eat them at all. So all I'm trying to say here is that plant choice matters. If we're trying to rebuild the food webs that support the life around us, both in natural areas and in, in human dominated areas. We have to choose the plants that support the food webs, that support the animals around us, or it won't work. And I'm gonna give you a few examples of how uh, well it does work when we do that. Starting with our house right here in Oxford, Pennsylvania. Uh, we live about an hour south of Philadelphia, southeast corner of Pennsylvania. We've got a section of a farm that was broken up a few years ago, a 10 acre section. And the last thing that they did on that farm was to mow it for hay. So there were very few plants there. Our goal was to uh, uh, rebuild the food web to restore the eastern deciduous ecosystem on this, this piece of land. And the only way you can do that is to rebuild the caterpillar populations that used to be here, because that's the food for all the other things that also want to be here. So I'm going to give you some examples of how, how we did that. I wanted to attract the Canadian outlet to our yard. That's what a Canadian outlet looks like. I'd never even seen a Canadian outlet, and that's what the adult looks like, just like a leaf. Well, you don't have Canadian outlets unless you have meadow rue. There was no meadow rue here. Our area was farmed literally for hundreds of years. All the meadow rue was long gone. So I got some seeds of meadow rue from someplace, planted it. They grew really nicely. 
But this was early on, and I actually had very little faith that the Canadian Alice would be able to find my little patch of meadow rue. So I didn't even go out and check it until maybe uh, two months after I planted it. Then I walked by for another reason, and it was covered with Canadian Alice. They had found it right away. Uh, I'm still surprised at how fast they, they found it. And now we have a good population of meadow rue and Canadian Alice. So we've added two species to the property. Same story with this beautiful moth, the goldenrod stowaway. That's actually a misnomer, has nothing to do with goldenrod. It's a specialist on this plant, Biden's Aristosa. I did know where there were some Bidens and a power line cut about 14 miles away. So I got some seeds, planted them at home. They grew very nicely. Well, it took a year for that beautiful moth to find my Bidens. Uh, but once it did, now we've got a good population of, of the ditch daisy and the goldenrod stowaway. So now I've added four species to the property. Hackberry Emperor. We wanted the Hackberry Emperor, not because it's the most beautiful butterfly uh, in, in the world, but because it belongs here. It's one of the species that should be here. Well, as its name suggests, it's a specialist on Hackberry, on Celtus. We didn't have any Hackberry, so I planted it. it took four years for the butterflies to find my, my Hackberry, but uh, they have. I checked one of the branches in June, uh, and there were nine Hackberry Emperor caterpillars on a single branch. So now we've added six species, and that's how it went. We didn't plant goldenrod, came in on its own, but along with it came uh, many of the species that depend on goldenrod, like the brown-hooded owlet, the arcidura flower moth, the goldenrod leaf miner, the distinct sparagonothus, the goldenrod gall moth. And this is one that hasn't come, the goldenrod flower moth. I don't know why it hasn't found our goldenrod yet. Should be here, uh, but, and, and that's what its caterpillars look like. But this is part of the fun. This is anticipation. It's like waiting for the, uh, the ketchup to come out of the bottle. Every year I go out and I check my, my goldenrod right about this time, looking for the goldenrod flower moth. One of these years I'm going to find it and that'll be a great day. Planted Virginia creeper. You know, in the East, a lot of people don't like Virginia creeper. I just don't know why. It's a great native plant. It can climb our trees without girdling them. It's got good fall color. It makes uh, really nutritious berries for the birds in the fall. It's a great pollinator plant, even though its flowers are not showy. It's a good ground cover, and it's the major host plant for the large sphinx moths that are the major part of the diet of cardinals. So things like the Pandora sphinx and its beautiful adult, the lettered sphinx, the hog sphinx, the abbot sphinx are all on Virginia creeper. I wanted to see if I get the double tooth prominent at our house, just because it's such a cool looking caterpillar. I mean, even if you don't like caterpillars, you got to love this guy. It's a specialist on elm. And of course, with the Dutch elm disease, we lost uh, our elms. But at the University of Delaware, there are two big elms that did not die for some reason. And they make a lot of seed every year. So uh, when we first moved in, it's been, it's been 20 years now. I scooped up a lot of seed, planted them at home. Those trees are now 80 feet tall, grew very nicely. And they attracted the double-toothed prominent American elm. Another big success. I wanted the evening primrose moth because it's beautiful. I like beauty like anybody else. Well, as its name suggests, it, it depends on evening primrose, but we didn't have any evening primrose. So I planted that. The moth came and, and spends the day with its head stuffed in the flowers. It's very cute. And I planted lots of oaks. Now, this is a gamble oak in the, in the Rocky Mountains. We've got bigger oaks uh, in the east. Uh, but a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to plant an oak because uh, they grow too slowly and I won't live long enough to enjoy them. Uh, and, you know, some of our oaks are 400 years old, 500 years old. And if it has to be 400 years old before you enjoy your oaks, you're right, you won't live long enough to enjoy it. But if you enjoy what your oaks do for your property, you can enjoy them right away. And I can say that with confidence because I planted my oaks as acorns 
or as, as two foot bare root whips, which means they were either free or cost $1.50 each. And right away, they started to uh, create that moth-based food web that feeds all the birds and everything else in our yard. By bringing in things like the solitary oak leaf miner, juvenile's dusky wing, the yellow-shouldered moth, uh, Suzuki's promolactus, the red wash caterpillar, the yellow vested moth, the orange tufted oneida, the spiny oak caterpillar, the two spotted oak punky, the variable oak leaf caterpillar, the red humped oak worm, the orange humped oak worm, the pink striped oak worm, the hesitant dagger moth, the lesser oak dagger moth, the greater oak dagger moth, the streaked dagger moth, the afflicted dagger moth, the crown bucolatrix, the orange patch smoky wing, the white blotch heterocampa, the oblique heterocampa, the red line panopoda, the laugher, and literally hundreds more species of moths have come to the oaks we have put in our yard. And they come right away. This is a pin oak that has just popped its head above the leaves. And here's a, a caterpillar, a crocus geometer, standing on the, on the ground eating the leaves of that, that tree. So you don't have to wait hundreds of years for your oaks to start to contribute to your local food web. They contribute right away. This is what our house looks like today. Uh, we've got a little lawn here. We're very traditional, but I put most, well, a lot of the plants back. I'm still putting plants back. Uh, and about four years ago, I decided to try to get a picture of every species of moth that is now making a living on our property, that is now running the food web on our property. I am still at it, but I'm up to 1,136 species of moths that I have photographed at our house. Now we've got 10 acres. Pennsylvania is 2.4 million acres. So on one 240 thousandths of the land area, we've got 44% of all the moth species that occur in the entire state. And because so many of these our types of bird food, we have recorded 60 species of birds that have bred on our 10 acres. Not flew by, but bred. Why am I telling you this? Well, this is another headline that we saw last year. The World Wildlife Fund says uh, that, that Earth has lost two-thirds of its wildlife since 1970. I'm thinking not at our house. Uh, I am sure we have increased biodiversity by at least two-thirds, and it didn't take that long, and it wasn't hard. We just put the plants back which just demonstrates we you know these are these are frightening headlines but we don't have to we don't have to buy it we can turn them around we just all have to get busy and put those native plants back but you may be thinking well uh, you know we have 10 acres a lot of people don't have that much land will it work on smaller properties in suburbia and that's a good question so let's go to margie and dan terpstra's house in kirkwood missouri where they have 0.6 acres 18 times less land than, than cindy and i have the first thing they did when they moved in, and they're in a development surrounded by everybody with the big lawns, is to get rid of their major invasive plant, which was bush honeysuckle, Amur honeysuckle. Got rid of that, planted a number of native plants, put in a water feature they call a bubbler, and then they sat back and started to count the birds that have used their yard, and they're up to 149 bird species, including 35 warbler species. Now, if you're a birder, you know that's a lot of warbler species to have. Just to put that in, in perspective, we've only recorded eight warbler species at, at our house, and they did all that on 0.6 acres. So yes, it works on smaller properties as well. What about urban yards? Let's go to Pam Carlson's house in Chicago. And I mean in Chicago, because right on the other side of that wall is one of the runways of O'Hare Airport. Right over here is Kennedy Expressway. Pam has one-tenth of an acre, three times smaller than the average lot size in, in North America. And it's not attached to any natural area at all. So she's a, a tiny little island in Chicago. She's a pretty island, but she did the same thing. She got rid of her invasive plants and put in a water feature uh, that the birds love. And then she sat back and started to count the number of birds that have used her yard. She's up to 120 species, including a woodcock. There's Pam's woodcock. So if you haven't seen a woodcock lately, go to Pam's house in Chicago. It's right there. 
can this work on farmland? Now, this is a bigger challenge because, of course, we've got to grow crops on farmland. But can we make them? Can we restore ecosystem function on farms? Yes, there's a number of ways we can improve the ecological integrity of farms. I don't have time to go into it uh, very, very much. But one of the things we can do is, is, is work on getting rid of the invasive plants that are on our property. Invasive plants are from another continent and they're very poor at supporting our local insects. So you get food web collapse when you have an invasion like this. We need to rebuild hedgerows every place we can. Get out of there. Uh, where we've taken them out. Uh, and when you want to build those hedgerows out of the native plants that support the insects that run the food webs. What is going on here? Come back. Oh dear. Huh. I am trying to advance to the next slide. There we go. Okay. Thank you for bearing with me. Another thing that, that uh, growers have started to do, particularly where there's areas of more rain, is to get rid of all the quote weeds. Those are the native plants on the edges of fields and put in grass. Uh, so it looks nice, but it has devastated our native bee populations, our monarch populations, and many of our other types of insects, because that was the only habitat that was left in much of the, the Midwest and other, other ag areas. So replace those grass areas with the native plants that used to grow on the edges of our fields. And then finally, rangeland, you know, 770 million acres of rangeland, most of it's overgrazed. So if we cut down uh, the number of cattle per acre, uh, this is an experimental range in Nebraska. Uh, it was a healthy place. All the birds were there. The cattle were very happy. Uh, we can graze a lot of cattle. We just have to graze fewer per acre. Uh, and they can be, they can be uh, um, uh, biodiversity havens. They really can. What about justifying abandoning good farmland for ecosystem restoration? Now, I know that's, that's happening. Some people are saying, well, you know, I just want to restore my, my farmland. Uh, you know, and some people say, well, uh, that's a waste. That's a waste of good, good farmland. But you know what? They're farming ecosystem services. It is, it is a valuable service that we humans need. It's not giving up uh, a little produce or, or, or uh, rangeland for humans. You're providing a service that we desperately need, and that is the production of those ecosystem services that keep us alive. Every day we have fewer of them. The problem is we don't pay for them. There, there's no way to make money. So people say, how can I actually do this and, and, and make a living? What I think we ought to do is have a, a pay-per-use fee, not a tax, but a fee. Uh, you know, we're happy to pay $10 to watch a movie on Netflix. We ought to be happy to pay $10 a year to use the ecosystem services that, that we require from the earth. If we did that in the US, that would that would generate uh, $3.3 billion every year. And that could go to support people who are dedicating some or all of their land to producing the ecosystem services that we all need. I would love to see that change. Okay, there are four things that we need to think about if we're gonna succeed in a big way. And I'm talking about, you know, not just the Gila River ecosystem, but the entire country, the entire world. One of them is we've got to reduce the area that we have in lawn, particularly in this country. We've got more than 40 million acres in lawn. That's the area uh, the size of New England. And that's a 2005 statistic. Uh, so we, you know we have more than that. And it's dedicated to an ecological dead space. Lawn is a status symbol, and I get it. You know We're not going to give up status symbols. But let's cut that area in half. The area of lawn we keep can still be manicured. Uh, it can still tell our, our neighbors that we're good citizens, and we, we get it that it's a cultural value. But we can put a lot of plants back in that area. And if we cut the area of lawn in half, That'll give us 20 million acres to work with. We can create a new national park. And if we do it at home, we can call it Homegrown National Park. 
and it'll be big. It'll be bigger than the Adirondacks, plus Yellowstone, plus Yosemite, plus Grand Tetons, Canyonlands, Mount Rainier, North Cascade, Badlands National Park, Olympic National Park, Sequoia National Park, plus the Grand Canyon, plus Denali, which is huge, plus the Great Smoky Mountains. You add up all those parks, still less than 20 million acres. What do you get when you put a park at home? You get the opportunity to develop a personal relationship with the natural world. I know you've talked about things like that at, at your festival the last three days. It's really important. It's really important. You get to do it at your own pace, at your own, your own time. All you have to do is go outside if part of nature is right where you live. You can avoid crowds. You know, if you go to a real national park these days, 375 million people did last year. What you're really interacting with is crowds and, and parking lots. It's also free. There's no admission fee and it's never closed no matter what pandemic comes down the pike. No travel hassles. You get to experience the natural world alone. And I don't know how you can develop that personal relationship with, with Mother Nature, you and Mother Nature, nobody mediating it unless you are alone. And this is particularly important for our kids who are suffering from nature deficit disorder. And we're trying, we get, we get 30 kids, we put them on a bus with a teacher and they drive for an hour, they go to a natural area. And they walk around, the teacher tells them not to touch anything. Then they get back on the bus and they go home. And that's their experience with the natural world, which I'm sure is better than nothing. But it's really been an experience with 30 other kids and a teacher telling them not to touch anything. If they have part of nature right where they live, they only have to do is go outside alone. No parental supervision. Let them develop that relationship on their own. Why is that important? Because they are the future stewards of the planet. If they don't know what they're stewarding, how to steward, why it's important, if they don't love what they're stewarding, they're going to be lousy stewards. And we can't afford any more of that. And maybe they'll learn how to hunt lizards. I'm learning this from my own granddaughter, Zoe, who lives in Hawaii on a very modest patch of nature. It's a little lawn with a hedge. But there are unknown lizards there. And when she discovered that, she sent me this slide of how you hunt lizards. You get on the ground. And you disguise yourself with leaves and sticks so the lizards can't see you coming. And then you crawl very slowly towards the lizard. No smiling. This is serious business. You can wear your best dress. That's okay. But you sneak up on the lizard. You catch the lizard. You put it in an aquarium. You learn how to take care of the lizard. You develop that personal relationship with that part of nature. Now, I don't think Zoe's going to be catching lizards the, the rest of her life in her best dress. Uh, but I guarantee she's going to remember catching lizards the rest of her life. Uh, and I also guarantee she's going to be, that's going to help her be a good steward of the planet. If you want your kids to do more than catch lizards, get Nancy Strinisti's Nature Play at Home. Dozens of examples of how to expose your kids to the natural world right where they live. And if you want to join Homegrown National Park, and I encourage you to do that, go to my new website, homegrownnationalpark.org, and get yourself on the map. So what you do is you, you put in uh, your location, the amount of area that you're going to be stewarding, taking out of lawn or, or, or maintaining the, the native plant community. Uh, and then your little piece of your county will, will light up. You will become part of a network of, of uh, North Americans who are trying to build uh, that 20 million acre homegrown national park to build the connectivity uh, to help create a preserved system outside of our parks and preserves. This is our attempt at social media. Doesn't cost anything. And no, we're not using your data. So I encourage you to get yourself on the map. All right, we're going to shrink the lawn. What are the plants we're going to put in the area that was lawn? Some of them have to be what I'm calling keystone plants. Remember what a keystone is? This is the Roman arch. The keystone is the stone in the middle of that arch. And if you take that stone out of the arch, the arch collapses. 
Well, I'm calling these keystone plants because if you take them out of the local food web, the food web collapses. Just 5% of our native plants are making 75% of that caterpillar food that drives those food webs. 14% of our native plants uh, are making 90% of the caterpillar food that drives those food webs. So think of the, the keystone plants in the ecological house that you're building as the two by fours that hold that house up. They're essential. You can't build a house out of wallpaper. They're not the only thing you're gonna build your house out of, but they are something you can't do without. So the question is no longer simply, are, are native plants better than non-native plants? On average, they, they certainly are. Excuse me, but there's a lot of native plants that uh, don't contribute all that much either. So the question really is, do we wanna focus on those, those, uh, you know, those hyper-productive ones, the ones that the ecosystem really depends on, uh, both for our, our uh, pollinators and our caterpillars that are, are supporting those food webs or not? Um, I get an email once in a while from somebody who says, don't you know that ginkgos, ginkgo biloba from, from Asia, actually grew in North America 7 million years ago? That makes them native. That means we can use them and everything will be great. Yes, I do know that ginkgos grew in North America 7 million years ago. We can argue about whether that makes them native today, but I'm not going to have that argument because that's not the metric anymore. It's not whether they're native or not. It's whether they do anything or not. Um, I don't care if, if ginkgos grew on the moon 7 million years ago. They produce zero caterpillars here today. They are not contributing to the local ecosystem. They're taking up space. What is contributing more than any other tree genus in the entire country? It's our oaks, our Quercus. In New Mexico, they support uh, 191 species. Actually, it's just in Santa Fe County, over 950 species nationwide. There's no other plant genus that comes close to that. How do you find out what all the keystone species are in, in your county, you go to Native Plant Finder and the National Wildlife Federation website, put in your zip code, and the ranked list of both woody and herbaceous plants will pop up for your county. Um, so they're ranked in terms of the number of caterpillar species that they support. This is what a typical list uh, in, in New Mexico would look like. Notice I say native oaks, native cherries, native willows. If I go to the, to the nursery and say, I want to buy a cherry, they're going to sell me a, an ornamental cherry from Asia. If I want to buy a willow, they'll sell me a weeping willow from, from Turkey. You've got to be, be uh, you've got to specify that you want a native member of these very powerful genera, or it's going to cut down on caterpillar use by 65%. We've done that experiment. These are the major herbaceous plants uh, that are, are very important. And actually in most counties of North America, goldenrod is very high. The various genera that asters were broken up into very high. Uh, the the um, perennial sunflowers, very high, particularly in uh, the uh, in the West, uh, both in terms of, of um, supporting caterpillars, but also in terms of supporting these specialist bees. You want when you're making a pollinator garden, you want to make a garden for specialist bees because the generalists will use those plants as well. If you don't put the plants in that the specialists require, uh, then you don't have them, of course. These three genera alone support over 40 species of bees that won't be there if they're not in your, your yard. The generalist bees like the honeybee and the bumblebees, those guys will be there as well. But think of the specialists when you're trying to build a pollinator garden. All right, we're going, to, we're going to reuse the area of lawn. We're going to put in keystone plants. We're going to invite a lot of insects to our yards, and then we're going to kill them with our security light, which, of course, is not the goal. Uh, there's a lot of research that is telling us that uh, light pollution at night is one of the major causes of insect decline. These are all the ways that lights kill insects, and it's actually good news, folks. This is good news. We have to turn around insect declines.
We can't tolerate it anymore. If we can do that by simply flicking a switch, turning our lights out at night, we're getting off easy. But I know what you're going to say. You can't turn the light out over your garage or over your barn because the bad man will come. All right, put a motion sensor on it. So it only turns on when the bad man does come. And the first thing you're going to recognize is the bad man doesn't come very often. And if you don't want to do that, take the white light out of your security system and put in a yellow light. A yellow LED light is the, the most effective. In that, yellow wavelengths are the least attractive to nocturnal insects. And that's the goal. If we were to switch out uh, our white lights for yellow lights overnight, we would save uh, millions, billions of insects and also millions of dollars because LEDs, of course, are a lot more energy efficient. The fourth thing we need to do is to landscape in a way that allows these vital caterpillars in our ecosystems to complete their development. So here's an example from where I live. I live in Chester County, Pennsylvania, where oaks support 511 species of caterpillars. A few of them, like the polyphemus moth, complete their development on the tree. The caterpillar eats the leaves, then it spins a cocoon and hangs from one of the branches, then it emerges as an adult, and then it does it all over again. I wish everything did that. But most species don't. 94% of the species that develop on oaks, and this is true for, for all the trees that are out there, grow on the tree, but then when they finish growing, they drop from the tree and they wiggle beneath the ground and pupate underground, or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that is under the tree. And that's the problem. There is no leaf litter under the tree. We mow and we compact the, the area under our trees to the point where the, the soil is rock hard and the caterpillars cannot get underground. So this becomes an ecological trap. The moths come in, lay their eggs, the caterpillars develop, then they drop down and die. I am convinced this is another major cause of insect declines, uh, at least in temperate zones worldwide. This is what most people do. You, you have the, uh, the tree in, in a yard. We're only starting to measure these, the ability of, of uh, landscapes like this to allow caterpillars to complete their development. But I guarantee a layered landscape like this is going to be much more effective. Where you have a tree, then you have you know, maybe a dogwood or um, a, a layer of several um, types of plants, azaleas, ferns, ground covers. I know these are Eastern plants, but you have your own plants that can create layers. They're creating safe sites. The caterpillars drop down, they can, the soil is not compacted. They can easily get beneath the ground, spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that is on here. Survivorship will be much higher. This is where you can do fancy gardening. Here's spring ephemerals uh, by putting beds around your trees. That's how you shrink your lawn. Put a bed around every tree that you have uh, and these all become safe sites. This is where you can use ground covers. Uh, Verbabena or mansa is a, a great ground cover. You've got a lot of ground covers in, in New Mexico. They're all safe sites. You're not going to be trampled and, and mowed. That's what you put under your trees. Uh, a, uh, another grad student I, I have uh, had, she's gone at this point, Desiree Narango, has done some wonderful work with Carolina chickadees in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and her results suggest there's actually room for compromise in our plant choice, uh, and that's, that's good news to me. What she did was ask the question uh, in suburban yards inside the Beltway in Washington, when the yards are landscaped primarily with native plants, how, do they, how well do they sustain chickadee populations compared to landscapes dominated in a typical way with introduced plants from Asia? And the first thing she found is when they're dominated by introduced plants, they produce 75% fewer caterpillars. So you've reduced the amount of bird food by 75%. 
Those landscapes were 60% less likely to have breeding chickadees at all. So the birds would come, there's nest boxes up in every landscape. They'd come and they'd look around and say, there's not enough food here. We're not even going to try to breed. If they did try to breed, they laid 1.5 fewer eggs. Those clutches were 29% less likely to survive at all. If they did survive, the nest produced 1.2 fewer fledglings, and it took them 1.5 days longer to do that. Now, if you put all that together in a population growth model as a function of the percentage of woody plant biomass in your landscape that is non-native, uh, this is what you get. We looked at woody plant biomass because that's where the chickadees forage. They forage in woody plants. This dotted line represents replacement rate. That is the rate at which the population has to reproduce in order to replace the adults that die every year. If you make that many babies, you have a sustainable population. It's not growing, but it's not shrinking either. If you make more babies in adults die, you've got a growing population. And if you make fewer babies in adults die, you've got a shrinking, unsustainable population. Right here is where those lines overlap. So generously speaking, you can have up to 30% of your woody plant biomass non-native. Can't be invasive. We can't tolerate that. Invasive plants are ecological tumors and they, they never stop. But there's a lot of non-native plants that are not invasive. You can have them in your yard as long as they don't dominate the landscape there. If 70% of your woody plant biomass is native, you can have a sustainable breeding bird population. So this is that area of compromise that I'm excited about. If my message was you can't have any non-native plants, nobody would listen. Everybody loves their, their non-native plants. But remember, it's not the presence of non-native plants that destroys food webs. It's the absence of natives. If we get the natives back, we can, we can tolerate uh, a number of non-natives. Can we get a, a pollinator garden into a typical suburban yard like this without uh, offending anybody? Of course we can put a little fence around it. It formalizes it. It tells people this is, this is on purpose. It's got a function. Uh, it's, it's pretty. It's meeting the needs of a number of species of bees. It's not very big, could be bigger. But if everybody did it, it still would help our pollinator situation quite a bit. Remember why we, we need pollinators. It's not because they pollinate a third of our crops. It's actually about a 12th of our crops. Um, but, you know, people say, well, I don't live next to agriculture, so I don't need any pollinators. Forget the agriculture argument. We need pollinators because they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. If we lost our pollinators, we lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. And that is not an option. Where do we need pollinators? Everywhere we need plants, which is everywhere. How about this design? I drew Latham design much bigger. Uh, imagine the amount of life that is here versus the amount of life that is here. Seems like a no-brainer. Can municipalities help us live with nature? Of course they can, and more and more of them are doing it. Minnesota has a Minnesota has a cost-sharing program that encourages homeowners to reduce uh, or replace all of their lawn with appropriate Minnesota prairie plants. It's called a uh, lawn to legume program, and it's very popular. A lot of people taking advantage of it. There's an island off Florida that uh, is encouraging. Uh, homeowners to allow burrowing owls, listed species, to burrow in the front yard. And this is the way the Endangered Species Act should have been written, with carrots rather than sticks. Rather than fining somebody if they've got an endangered species on their property and they do something with their property, pay them to take care of it. Everybody would want an endangered species on their property. Um, St. Louis, Missouri, Fayetteville, Arkansas have a, a uh, bounty on calorie pears. Calorie pears is one of the most invasive ornamentals we have in the East here. Uh, if you take out a calorie pear, they'll give you a free tree replacement. And water utilities all over the, the uh, country, particularly the West, are giving people $100 coupons to uh, plant water-efficient 
native plants rather than the, the thirsty non-natives. And of course, the big lawn conversion programs in the far west, particularly California, $2 per square foot uh, if you take out you know, the, the lawn that they do not have the water for. I mean, there's just no, no question about it. And put in appropriate xeric plants. I think we made three missteps in the early years of conservation. The first one's a serious one. We've, we've, we've come to think of, of nature as being, um, you know, it's nice, we like it, but it's not essential. It's optional. And that's a serious mistake. If it's not essential, when, when resources are in short supply, when push comes to shove, then nature, of course, is always, always in the back. It's always going to lose out. I went to the Cincinnati Zoo before the uh, virus broke out, and there's this wall-sized poster there that, to me, epitomizes our society's view of conservation. We want to save nature, save wildlife for future generations to enjoy. That was Teddy Roosevelt's argument for creating the national park system. We want to save these wonderful places so the future generations can enjoy them. And I understand that, but it suggests that nature is there just for entertainment. Nature's not there just for entertainment. We need to save nature so that we have future generations. It's a little bit more urgent. We've also assumed that the humans and nature cannot coexist. Now we talked about this, but if we restrict conservation efforts just to the areas that are that are not supporting a lot of humans, we're going to fail because those, those areas are too few, too isolated, and too small to sustain the amount of nature that we need to run the ecosystems that support us. David Quammen has a, a great analogy between a Persian rug and an ecosystem. That is a functional Persian rug. That is not 71 Persian rugs. That is 71 rug fra fragments, none of which are acting like a Persian rug. And that is what we've done to our ecosystems. The UN designates biosphere reserves as places of ecological significance. And I hate that terminology because it suggests there are places on planet Earth with no ecological significance. Not so. Every square inch of the planet has ecological significance, even our yards, even our corporate landscapes, even our roadsides, even the edges of our agriculture. So we need to glue our rug back together again by putting the plants back, putting the plants that run our ecosystems back. They are native plants. And not just to build biological corridors that connect uh, 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 habitat that's already intact, but to recreate viable habitat where we've destroyed it. And that's where we're living. That's where we work, where we play. So this is going to be the first time in modern history that, that humans and nature have, have coexisted. Our third misstep was to leave Earth stewardship just to a few specialists, a few conservation biologists, few ecologists. For some reason, we didn't see it as an inherent responsibility of every human being on the planet. But I don't know why, because every human being in the planet depends entirely on the quality of Earth's ecosystems. So why wouldn't everybody have the responsibility for good Earth stewardship? Stan Reshworth, a Cherokee elder, once said, the Western settler mindset was, I have rights. The mindset of indigenous people is, I have obligations. You are not born with those mindsets. You're taught them. We are great at teaching this one. We have been terrible at teaching not just our kids, but ourselves, our peers. Everybody has an obligation to good earth stewardship. It doesn't mean you have to save biodiversity for a living, but you can save it where you live. And if you do, it empowers you. You know, the earth's problems are big. And if people, most people feel totally powerless these days. What can one person do to solve these giant problems? Well, one person can shrink the lawn. One person can put in keystone plants. One person can turn out their lights. One person can build pollinator gardens. One person can get rid of their, their invasive plants. We didn't talk about that, but you know about that. One person can totally revitalize the, the ecosystem in the land that they own and then enhance their local ecosystem rather than degrade it. And it also shrinks the problem down to something that's manageable for each one of us. 
Don't think about the entire planet's problems. You get depressed. Just worry about the piece of the earth that you can influence. If you own property, that's obvious. That's where you start. If you don't own property, help somebody who does. Help a land conservancy, help, help a, a park or a preserve. They're all underfunded, all understaffed. They will love you as a volunteer. So as property owners or as volunteers, each one of us has the power. We certainly have the responsibility to fix dead landscapes like this. Whether or not we decide to do so is gonna determine nature's fate and then ultimately our own fate. I think I've convinced my grandkids that you are nature's best hope. I hope I've convinced you as well. Thanks very much. I doubt that was fantastic, Doug. Thank you very, very much. So first of all, I'd like to ask folks out there in Zoom land, use the Q&A to ask questions that I will then ask to Doug, okay? So forget the chat for now. Use the Q&A to ask questions that you want me to present to Doug. So while you're doing that, asking your Q&A questions, I'm going to start off with just a few things that I've been wondering about. It was just so nice to hear you talk about the oaks. And we all know that the best time to plant a tree or plant an oak was 15, 20 years ago, right? But the next best time is like tomorrow. And so many people bought little oaks, you know, that were two or three feet tall um, at our plant sale yesterday. And uh, it it's, should be encouraging for them to know that um, those have immediate benefits. So, you know, they, they have done the right thing because the bigger the oak you get, the less of a chance it's going to actually survive. Mm -hmm. And if it's been root pruned, it sits there and rebuilds those roots before it grows again. So when you plant those little oaks, they catch up and they pass the bigger oaks that we plant. Plus they're affordable. So, you know, you don't get instant gratification, but you, you get instant ecological gratification and you will have a much healthier tree in a shorter period of time than you might think. Yeah. Great. So I think it was in um, Nature's Best Hope, I read that you and your students did some research on varieties yesterday at our plant sale. You know, we have 1,500 species listed on what we love is Gila Flora, which is our Western New Mexico University website that, um, you know, gives us 1,500 descriptions of plants, but we know there are a lot more than that. Um, but plant growers and horticulturists take these native plants and they make them a little brighter and they a little more fragrance, et cetera. What, what has your research shown in that regard? Yeah, that's a common question. Are the cultivars of native plants as ecologically effective as the straight species? Uh, and the answer is, it depends. It depends on what the genetic variant is that was, was or what the, the genes that were tweaked in order to create this cultivar are. Uh, so we did a, a study looking at six typical cultivar traits for woody plants. And the only one that, that consistently uh, discouraged insect use was taking a green leaf and making it red or purple. That loads the leaf with anthocyanins, which are feeding deterrence. So we know that's not a good idea. Uh, so stick with the green leaf plants. Uh, but whether or not the other, the other traits discourage insects, for the woodies, they, they really didn't. Most cultivars are, are focused on flowers, uh, and we like, to, we like to make echinaceas look like zinnias. And I mean, it, they're like hemlines. We, the horticulturists are convinced that if they don't change things every year, people won't buy new, new plants. And that's because we're stuck in this notion that plants are just decorations, 
if we buy them for their ecological value, even if they look the same every year, that's okay. That's okay. And people, you know, the, the nursery industry is starting to learn that there is a big demand for native plants. And you pointed it out with the sales yesterday. Uh, the thing I don't like about cultivars is that the trait is, is maintained over generations by cloning which means there's zero genetic variability. Uh, and one thing we are sure about is that genetic variability is what maintains healthy populations in under stress in nature. And we're stressing plants a lot with climate change and, and fires and all kinds of things. We need as much genetic variability out there as possible. So I'd love nurseries to carry more straight species that are full of genetic variability uh, to give our plants a, a fighting chance. If you go to the nursery and they only have cultivars, say, well, we get this in a straight species. And if they say no, then say, okay, goodbye. If you, if you walk out of it without buying something else, they will take note and they will, they will track down those, those plants. Now, there are good reasons why some of the cultivars have been created, like to introduce disease resistance, or some plants are just too big and floppy for small areas. So they've made them more smaller and, and compact. So I understand that. But uh, we know the straight species works. We should at least have the option of buying those. Uh, and so request it. That, that's what's going to change what's, what's offered is your request. Very good. Thank you. So Mary has a question here. So would, and this is an important one for us out here um, in the Southwest who have fire danger. And it said, would you address the balance between planting the pollinator plants the pollinator plants, native plants, and the trees, and the need for defensible space to protect homes and other property on our Western lands. Do we need uh, whack? Do we not? Do we keep the brush population down, all that oak brush? Well, okay. Um, yes, you have, you have a challenge that we, for the most part, don't have in the East. And I, I, I am I'm sorry about that because it's a big, a big challenge. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can stop uh, planting our, our native plants. Uh, fire suppression over the last century has built up uh, a lot of fuel in areas where it didn't used to be. There used to be regular ground fires that kept that fuel low. So keeping the fuel low around your house in a similar way is, uh, is, makes, makes good sense. A lot of people say, well, I'm not going to put any trees near my house. But this is where oaks, uh, this is another benefit of oaks, particularly any of the live oaks that you have. Uh, because they intercept those flying embers. The most flammable thing in your Western landscapes is your house, mm -hmm. and it provides a lot of fuel. So you want to keep those embers from hitting your fuel when you get those big winds and they blow for a long area. And the, the big, if you get big oaks around your house, they intercept those embers and, and uh, snuff them out. So rather than being a liability, uh, and that's not true with a lot of the conifers, but it certainly is true with, with the oaks. It's a good reason to put oaks around your house when you live in a place where it's appropriate for oaks. And not all of New Mexico is. So it's, it's uh, you know, take advantage of the landscape attribute when, when you can. Excellent. And Chris wants to know, how do insects find their host plants? It is monarchs to a milkweed. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. It's through chemistry. They smell it on the wind. And they follow a, a the smell of the plant. Uh, it's a plume of smell. It's like walking along and you smell somebody's perfume. You can walk into this perfume plume, then you walk out of it. We'll turn around and walk back towards where it was, and then you hit it again. And you can you can track it down uh, right to the source. 
if it's a stationary source. And that's what the insects do. All plants are putting out odors all the time, and that is how they find their host plants. They make double sure. So a, a female monarch, for example, will land on a milkweed, and she's got sensors on her feet, which are, are uh, smelling the surface cuticular hydrocarbons of those milkweed leaves and said, yep, this is milkweed. I will lay my eggs here. So they've got a, a fail-safe system. They smell it in the air and then they smell it uh, tactily to make sure they're putting their egg in the right plant. You put your egg in the wrong plant, you've just killed your offspring. So it's, it's really important that you get it right. And they're good at it. So Star has, it's not a question, but a comment. And she has been a, a lifelong renter. She says that she's been able to persuade some landlords to let her replace deadness with native plants, as long as it doesn't look too untidy. I, th I think that's a, a, that's a great um, illustration of, of what we all can do, homeowners or not. We do have this notion that, that native plants are ugly and wild and that, that you abandon landscaping and that's what native landscaping is. It's not what I'm promoting. Um, and this is actually in areas where there, where lawn is used. It's a cue for care. Uh, you, you, one mower's width of lawn around a flower bed or along your sidewalk or something tells people that, that this is intentional. All those plants behind that strip are meant to be there. Uh, you're not, you haven't moved out. You know, you haven't stopped landscaping. We do want to keep it neat, particularly in the front yard where it's very uh, visible all the time. But but formality is a function of the design. It's not a function of the plants in the design. Our native plants are used in formal designs in Europe all the time. And I guess that's okay because the plants are non-native there. But I've seen some, some really totally formal gardens where every plant is a native plant. So if it gets wild and messy, that's our fault as designers. It's not the plant's fault. So Tricia has a question. If you have any suggestions for working with towns and businesses to go native to get them to transition into using native plants. Yes, I do. Make it known that that's important to you. Towns are run by mayors. They are elected and elected officials do what they think their constituents want. They wanna be elected again. If everybody said, this is important to me, then it becomes important to them. Uh, the, the town council, uh, many of those are elected positions, but uh, I've got, you know, I get emails all the time where people are, are convincing uh, the, you know, their municipalities, that this is an important issue. Those, our towns, our cities, they're run by people. They're seeing these headlines too. You know, they're, they're not robots. They get it. We're losing our biodiversity and we've got to change something. And if they can be an important part of that change, a lot of them get really enthusiastic about it. So it's easier today than ever before to convince uh, townships to actually change old practices. When they do street plantings, they're pulling plants from a list that was created back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And nobody's, nobody's thought about changing the, the, the list. But if you say, hey, you know, those those plants are the wrong plants. Here are the right plants. Many people are listening. So, but it takes, it takes citizen input. So Jeff has a question here and he says that there many non-native plants seem to be really, really popular with native species. There's butterflies and hummingbirds. Is there a list of good, quote unquote, good non-native plants available? Um, no, <laughs> but here's, Here's a general rule. So uh, a, a congener, a non-native plant that is in the same genus as, as natives uh, has a better chance of supporting some native insects than if it's not closely related. 
So if you plant uh, the English oak or the Chinese oak, it's, it's an oak and it's closely related to the oaks in this country. Now we've done those experiments. We did that with 18 different congeners and on average using a non-native member of the same genus reduced insect use by, by 65%. So uh, that was more than I thought it would, but when they're, they're not closely related, it reduced it by more than 75%. So, so there's some benefit of using plants that are close relatives. Uh, and, and there's a few cases, willows is one of them, where the difference is, is, is minimal. But in most cases, using a non-native member of the same genus uh, does reduce insect use. There are no examples that I know of where a non-native plant is more productive than natives. And that makes sense because our insects adapted to the natives. They didn't adapt to any of these non-natives. So for them to do better on a, on a plant they'd never seen before, that would be a big surprise. All right. And I was thinking about the question, maybe Trisha's question a little while about towns and cities and counties getting involved. Um, and I think about Xerxes and they have um, taken over this B-City USA. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was tried here in Silver City. And um, I won't go into it, but it it, it, it failed. Um, and that that I always thought that 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 naming it B city was probably not right, you know, maybe pollinator city USA, because that's really what that program is all about. It's about pollinators and promoting pollinators. It's not about promoting honeybees. Any thoughts about Xerxes and their B city USA and B campus USA? And there's also tree cities USA. There's other groups doing that. Actually, that's the first time I've heard it failing. So <laughs> they're they're often pretty popular in, in um, Nashville, Tennessee. I think they're they're very popular in many places uh, in the southeast. They have been very popular. So, um, but it's a good thought. If I thought everybody liked honeybees, though. <laughs> well, there was there was an unfortunate incident in our dog park where someone was attacked by a a swarm of bees from a beekeeper nearby and it was okay. a fluke and um obviously yeah. that uh tainted that little project yeah, but i yeah, yeah. but i i just think that it could come back and we could be successful if we could call it pollinator city usa or something yeah that, that's right words words count so yeah but the bee city people didn't care for that so jim and jackie have a question about uh, junipers they have a lot of junipers on their property mm-hmm. are they good for caterpillars yes they are a good plant, particularly in the West. Um, it's a plant that uh, now they can they can get more numerous than they used to be by fire suppression. So actually, if you if you want to thin something, there are places, particularly when you get a little farther, like Western Oregon, where the the junipers have gotten so thick uh, that it's not a natural situation anymore. It's a good plant though, but if you're going to thin something, a juniper might not be a bad bad idea. <laughs> All right. So um, James says that they love nature's best hope and we'd like to plant our yard. I'm assuming in natives and such, but the database is big. Is there any standard design for dummies localized (laughs) or local sharing of what works well? Yeah. Um, There is no, you know, a design is a, is a collaboration between the designer and the homeowner because it's, 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 it's a type of fashion. There is no one right design and it depends on what you want, what your tastes are, uh, which is why, you know, any, nobody offers, well, this is, this is how you do it. 
it depends on on what what your neighbors are. Oh, there's a thousand variables there. Um, there are people working on, uh, I guess they're they're apps essentially, where you get to design your own space, working with with these professionals. And I can put whoever this is, I can put you in touch with uh, a woman who's doing it very successfully. Uh, and they will help you come up with a plan that works for you. It is, they don't name it this, but it is designed landscapes for dummies. I mean, yes. And, and uh, you know, I don't have any design skills at all. And, and you know, people think that, that we've got a wonderfully designed landscape. We really don't. Uh, it's where the plants came uh, on their own. Uh, so I, I appreciate the fact that that um, that skill is not inherent in everybody and you need you need guidance. So I would recommend taking advantage of those those apps that that um, are available. And I can put you in touch with her if if you're interested in that. Just send me an email. Yeah, or and maybe we could um, could talk to Allison and maybe get it up on the the Grip site or or mm-hmm. one of our sites mm-hmm. as a follow up to this program. So Nana says that. She says milkweed. There was a concern about planting them in places that shifted the direction of the monarchs. They caused monarchs to miss the main site that they would flourish. So what are the alternatives? I bought a couple of couple of suggestions and they were gopher food. <laughs> so I'm not, not sure where that one's going. Um, but you know, I haven't heard this argument that it's pulling Margaret monarchs away from where they, they're going. Um, you know, I will tell you right now, I, I am not. I do not know enough about the migrating paths of monarchs in, in New Mexico uh, or, or how many actually go through New Mexico at all. I know there most of them are farther east. The monarchs in California are in terrible shape. You are, you are right on the edge of an extinction event there. Um, but uh, uh, I wouldn't so, worry about it. I would plant the milkweeds. Uh, feed yes. the golfers, whatever, but the, the monarchs that are there will, will use it. You know, when monarchs are migrating, they're not reproducing. So they're not going to be drawn off course to your milkweeds uh, to reproduce. They have shut down their egg production and they are simply migrating. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, maybe in, in Southern New Mexico, you might have some resident monarch populations. I don't know if you have the queen that is resident there. We and do. Then they're they're going to stay there all year. Uh, and the milkweeds, of course, are very, very useful for them as well. So um, it, it seems as if this year we have an enormous amount of monarchs. And in our yard alone, you know, in the last week or two weeks, I could go out and just a very small patch of what we call poison milkweed. It's Asclepius subverticillata. There were 12 or 14 caterpillars there. We've had five or six. I don't know if it's the if it's chrysalis or chrysalises, but we've got them. And I'm seeing the same thing at our Silver Creek Botanical Garden. There are monarch caterpillars everywhere. And so it seems like um, that the monarchs are doing really well here in Silver City. One of the questions is, and you talk to people around here, it's like, well, where do they go? Do they migrate to Mexico? It's at, I don't think anybody really knows. So if you have some interested um, graduate students that are looking for, you know, a dissertation project, you know, to get their PhD, um, you know, this might be a good place to start because at least this year they seem very, very, very common. Of course, this year you had good monsoons. You got some good rain and water. It's all about water. By the way, it's chrysalids is the plural. (laughs) 
Okay. So that's interesting. I didn't know you had breeding monarchs in, in, in New Mexico. So that's great. It's great to hear. And I bet they do go to Mexico. I had the great pleasure the other day, and this is not an Asclepius, but it's Finastrum, and it's a it's a creeping climbing milkweed. And um, I watched the monarch female come in. She puts her abdomen up to the, the that nice lanceolate leaf, and she left. And by golly, there's this little there's white dot. And then four <laughs> or five days later, there's the smallest caterpillar I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and um, so it's just um, we're rich in monarchs this year. Great, great, good, good news. Uh, Chris Overlock says just a little suggestion to report monarch larvae butterflies to journeynorth.org. Um, Chris, I know, is um, uh, netting monarchs and uh, putting a tag on them. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe the research has begun. Yeah. Chip Chip Taylor in Kansas would be able to answer your question. I think they're, they're pretty solid on where these monarchs are going. Okay. Chip Taylor. Chip Taylor runs Monarch Watch. Okay. Very good. So I would suggest folks to ask questions on that Q and a it's uh, questions are slowing down here. (laughs) So let's see here. So, so here's a, a question. I don't want people to, uh, to uh, start driving by my house and throwing things at the in the yard and the house, but um, is the concern about monarchs overblown? I mean, considering that that's one species and we have, you know, so many species to to think about and protect. Right. Yes. the the con- The concern about monarchs is not overblown. In in 2013, there were only 3.6 percent of the eastern population left. And the Eastern population in 1976 was huge. So that is a drastic decline of a common species. And it was a direct result of switching out all of those weedy agricultural edges for lawn all over the Midwest. And actually, it's all the way to the east now. Um, A totally unnecessary practice uh, that can easily be reversed. And we're trying to encourage that. But uh, we we are totally capable of wiping out common species. We know that. We do it on a regular basis. But what I want is the concern of the monarch to be equally distributed with the concern of everything else that is being wiped out. The only reason we care about the monarch is because it's a pretty butterfly. If it was an ugly brown moth, nobody would care. Nobody would notice. Um, so... Whatever the reason is, we care about it. It's been a poster child of host plant specialization. Now people understand no milkweeds, no monarchs. That's true for 90% of the the butterflies and moths that are out there. So extend that concern to all the other insects that are driving our ecosystems. It's funny. People say we want to save the monarch to save the pollinators. Monarchs don't pollinate. (laughs) They're not pollinators at all, but that's fine. Save them anyway. Um, Yeah. Uh, so no, it's not overblown, but I want it. I want people to realize they are not the only thing in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. So Tricia says she does a lot of native planting projects on public land, and she's a youth conservation corps supervisor. And um, do you have any ideas or advice on working with city employees and the general public about the over maintenance issue that you address in your talk? you know, preventing them from weed whacking, et cetera. And I'll just add a little aside here at our plant. So yesterday, there's a little town called Tyrone here. And um, 
this fellow was saying, you know, how do we keep the city from mowing all that lawn in front of the, um, the city area right along the highway? And um, it's a pretty large area. And I know that the local college, uh, Western New Mexico University, the plant taxonomy class and others use that because there are many, many native grasses as well as some non-native grasses, but they're just mowing that down. So it's, how do you stop that weed whacker mentality? It's a habit uh, that we got, we fell into at the, uh, shortly after the turn of the century. And it was all, it was for aesthetics. You know, people say, well, we have to mow because animals hide in there and you have more accidents when you don't mow. None of that's true. Uh, there's no data to support that. We're mowing strictly because we started it and now people think it looks neat. Uh, and we spend, you know, a zillion dollars supporting mowing around. We've got 4 million miles of road roads. Each one of them have two sides and we're mowing all of it all year round, several times a year. If you said, okay, it has to be mowed, mow it once a year. That is enough. And do it in the wintertime when you're not killing mm-hmm. everything. So there's no ecological reasoning to this mowing. Uh, there are groups that are working on that. Uh, Iowa, for example, has has reprairieized. Uh, I don't know what it is, fifteen hundred miles of roadside or something. They're they're going great guns. They're doing wonderful jobs there. There's a talk of a, a monarch um, corridor that goes from Canada right down to Mexico, basically along roadsides that will not be be mowed. So we're getting there. It's a sociological issue. People worry if you stop mowing, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. So the first thing you have to say is no one's going to lose their job. We'll just do it through attrition. If you reduce mowing and somebody retires, you don't hire another mower. We did a big study at the University of of Delaware several years ago where they planted, they stopped mowing and planted roadsides with different types of native plantings and then took surveys of people driving by and say, which type of planting do do you like? Uh, And they found out some interesting things. When the planning went right up to the road, people did not like it. It was too messy. But if there was one mower width of grass, then all of a sudden it was was great. So it was very successful. And as soon as the program was over, and it was like a six or seven year program, the mowers mowed it all down anyway. (laughs) Why? Because they always did. You know, this is (laughs) the way it is. It, it, it takes some oversight. I can't tell you how many experiments at the University of Delaware have been set up and then destroyed by some guy with a mower that just goes right over it because nobody told them. We like to mow and it's not a good reason. Uh, so, so we just need a little bit more top-down control uh, about the people in charge of those mowers. So mowing is not, not going to be the default anymore. John? We're yes. about five minutes over. So if you okay. could take one last, que- is there one last question? Yeah, there's just, it's just, it's a really nice little question from Jim and Jackie. How is it that monarchs don't pollinate? They're not good pollinators. Well, butterflies in general are not good pollinators. They go to, most of the insects that go to flowers are flower visitors. But unless you're transferring pollen from the male part of the flower to the female part of the flower, you don't pollinate it. So monarchs are going to flowers to get the nectar that is there. And they're, you know, they're beautiful. They're, the nectar is essential for the monarchs, but uh, their legs are not designed to transfer pollen. As are bees. As are bees. Bees have hairs on their legs. The, particularly the specialist bees, the pollen grains 
have architecture, which is designed to attach to the particular hair architecture of those specialist bees. Plants don't want to waste pollen. They don't want things that are not going to go to the same species of plant someplace else and move that pollen. So all these flower visitors that are there, they try to keep the pollen away from them and only let the specialists move it around or the generalists that are going to a lot of, lot of pollen, uh, a lot of other plants as well. But butterflies aren't designed for pollination. Now, there's, there are a few exceptions. There are some moths that are specialist pollinators, like the yucca moth, of course, and... and um, uh, there's a moth that pollinates uh, tilia, basswood. Um, there's a number of sphinx moths that pollinate by going deep into the flower with their long tongues and they get it on their face and move it just like hummingbirds do. Mm-hmm. But those are exceptions. And mm-hmm. butterflies, for the most part, it just doesn't stick to them and they don't do very much pollination. And that's okay. We like butterflies anyway. You know. <laughs> well, thank you. I think the big hook is going to come out for both of us here pretty soon. So thank you, Doug. It was absolutely fantastic and everybody just realized that this is has been recorded so um we're going to be um sending this out to our members again and um really distributing this because it's it's a fantastic talk and maybe we can use what we certainly can use some of this information when we talk to our our city council and to the you know to the uh county commissioners etc etc Okay. So and remember, that is exactly why I write these books. I write them to convince people that this is important. So feel free to give a book to somebody you need to convince. <laughs> and you can get it out of the library. That's okay. <laughs> well, thank I you. want to thank you so much, Doug Tallamy, for a very informative and inspiring presentation. I'm sure you aren't looking at the chat, but people are conveying <laughs> that they are very inspired. Don Graves, thank you for being tonight's moderator. I'm kind of surprised that for the people who ask questions about, oh, there's a really big database of native plants, how do I kind of narrow it down? I would recommend joining the native Gila Native Plant Society. It's a really friendly group of people who know the native plants of the Gila. Uh, After this really great presentation, I bet there's a lot of you who are inspired to read Nature's Best Hope. I want to remind you that you have one last chance now to receive a copy of this book for donations to the Gila Conservation Coalition of $50 or more. If you'd like to support our work on behalf of the Gila River and on behalf of insects, please go to the link in the chat, make a donation, and we'll reserve a copy for you. Thank you very much for a great festival, everybody. We hope to see you at next year's 18th annual Gila River Festival. And as Don mentioned, the recording of this presentation and the others from the Gila River Festival will be posted on the festival website next week. Thank you again so much, Doug. That was really wonderful. You are quite welcome. Good night, everybody. Thank Thank you, you, everyone. Good night. Good night.